Good evening, church. So, as you know, this sermon is directed particularly towards fathers and really fathers with daughters. But the topic tonight has implications for all of us. The title of the sermon is A Father's Role in Courtship. But as a first-generation Reformed church full of children... This is a topic that is necessary to understand if we are going to have a biblically obedient church culture. And if we don't get it right in our church culture, how can we expect the culture at large to get it right? Our goal is to be culture builders, which starts in our homes and our church. So we know the culture at large promotes recreational dating, where there is no uh, parental, no fatherly oversight. And in many ways, we have been influenced by the culture's view of dating. The concept of biblical courtship is not really a difficult concept, but it's a foreign concept to many, right? Because we take our P's and Q's from the culture at large. Uh, We're influenced uh, in ways that oftentimes we don't even understand or recognize. So the culture views a man's headship over a woman as negative, outdated, a primitive concept. They view it as oppressive to women and that a man's authority is putting a woman in danger or at the very least it's holding them back. The lie in our culture that leads the charge against male authority is that men and women are the same. The culture raises sons and daughters to be the same, to chase after the same things, to strive after careers, to be independent. And that there are no gender roles and that a woman can go act like a man and go after everything a man goes after. Really, what the feministic culture is saying is that womanhood stinks and the only good things are what men have. So the only way a woman can be happy or successful is to act like a man and go after the things men go after. Many in evangelicalism make no general distinctions at all. A woman can be a pastor. A wife doesn't need to be submissive or a help me in her home. Uh, a husband doesn't necessarily have to be the leader of his home. That's egalitarianism. And another popular camp is complementarianism, which basically says that there are gender roles, but that gender roles are based really only on what God has assigned. There's not that much difference in the design or capability of men and women, but men and women should be obedient to what God has assigned to them. So hypothetically, a woman could potentially do better than men in the man's role. But they shouldn't because that's just not what they're called to do. So they believe that a woman could potentially make a better pastor than a man, but that they just shouldn't do it because it's not their calling. Right? You, you heard Beth Moore um, say that for years, uh, standing behind a pulpit preaching, which she shouldn't have been doing in the first place. But she uh, said that so much that well, women could make uh, as good a pastor as men, but they just shouldn't. Well, then you get, go down the slippery slope. Well, if they can do it as good as men or better, why shouldn't they? 
We saw that recently with Rick Warren, right? He was in the uh, fluffy complementarian camp for years till he started seeing the inconsistencies and he went full-blown egalitarian. So that's what has happened to many in the complementarian camp. It's a sl- slippery slope. If a woman can do as good or better than a man as a pastor, why not just make her one? But a woman can't be a pastor as much as a man can't have a baby. It's not only about assignment, it's about design. It's not a man's design to have a baby. And it's not a woman's design to be a pastor. That's like telling a a bird, telling a fish, hey, I could swim better than you, but I'm just not going to because that's not my calling. That's absolutely ridiculous, but that's what modern-day complementarianism has become. And most complementarians believe that women being the weaker vessel only means weaker in physical strength. But, But that's not only what being the weaker vessel means. Women are not designed to lead the way men are designed to lead. Not only are women not uh, designed to bear the physical load, but they aren't designed to bear the emotional and spiritual load of being covenant heads. I am doing my wife a disservice if I make her pick up my responsibilities and duties to provide for and protect my family. That's my job. Provide and protect doesn't mean just physical it, it means providing and protecting in all areas of life. And if, if the wife is the stronger vessel in the marriage, then men, you are failing in your marriage. You are failing in your home. First Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Peter tells husbands to honor the woman as the weaker vessel and live with her in an understanding way. Peter is by no means limiting weaker vessel to just being physically weaker. Live with your wives in an understanding way because she's not as physically strong as you. That doesn't really capture the full essence of what Peter's saying. Weaker vessel includes physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was deceived. Did Satan go after Eve because she was just physically weaker? Did he physically overtake her? No, he went after the weaker vessel and he deceived her. So women shouldn't be put down or made fun of for being the weaker vessel. And women shouldn't be dishonored by being treated like they aren't the weaker vessel. Women should be honored as a weaker vessel, and their male head should honor their weakness by providing for and protecting them in body, spirit, and soul in all areas of life. So a man must be strong in every area a woman is fragile. He should serve her by leading her. And that is biblical patriarchy. Biblical patriarchy believes our design dictates our assignment. Our gender um, roles aren't Uh, just arbitrarily assigned, they are rooted and grounded in the created order. God has designed us. He has fitted us. And He has uh, built us for our assignments. Men don't uh, carry things because they just happen to have broad shoulders. Men were designed with broad shoulders to carry things. A woman doesn't just happen to have a womb, therefore she has babies. She was designed with a womb with the purpose of bringing forth babies. By design, 
The woman is the weaker vessel who is to be under the protection and authority of a male head. And a man is to be a holistically strong leader and honor his fragile wife with his strong leadership. It's not oppressive for women to fulfill their creational role. It's loving to train our daughters to walk in the design they are created for. And it's for their good and protection. It is a glorious thing to be a woman. Biblical womanhood is beautiful and it should be honored and cherished. And anyone who thinks biblical womanhood is a, a second class citizen or it's, it's not as good as, as being a man... What's wrong with you? You're part of the problem. God has designed it. And it is beautiful. And it is um, an instrument in His kingdom. And it reflects His glory. It is oppressive to tell women the only way they can have true fulfillment is to act like men. And it's to their destruction. Because women make terrible men. And likewise, men make terrible women. So what am I getting at? We must reject the lie that men and women are the same and that sons and daughters should be raised to be the same. In the very beginning, we see God's design for men and women. God makes man in His own image and He gives man the dominion mandate in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to take dominion over the earth. And in Genesis 2.15, we see God places Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, to provide and protect. A man is to provide for and protect what is placed under his authority. And in Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates uh, a woman to be a helper to the man placed under his authority, and she is to be a helpmeet to him, fulfilling um, uh, a help me to him in fulfilling the dominion mandate. He couldn't really be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth without her, could he? So God joins Adam and Eve together, and Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God joins the first man and wife together and tells us what the normative practice for mankind should be going forward. A man shall leave his father's house and cleave to his wife. We are to train our sons to be strong leaders, to be battle-tested, to one day leave home, pursue a wife, and be the head of his own family. With our daughters, everything she needs is in the home. She learns how to be a wife, a mother, a helpmeet in the home under the protection and authority of her father. Sons leave, daughters are given. Sons leave home and daughters are given homes. That's a recurring biblical theme that daughters are given in marriage. So a, a son is trained in the home to one day leave his father's house and go start a family of his own. And a daughter is trained in the home to be a helpmeet and stays in the home under her father's authority until she is pursued by a suitor through her father. And with the father's oversight and approval, the father gives her in marriage and transfers his authority to his daughter's suitor. And he becomes her husband and new covenant head. And ideally, there's never a gap of time where a woman is out from under male headship. Male headship is thought of as a negative thing, but what we find is that it is a God-given protection and blessing to women. Male headship is given uh, to a man by God to protect and to provide for those under his authority. So in, in modern-day romance stories, right, in the movies that you all have seen, who is the main antagonist? 
to a young couple's relationship, to their romance. Usually, it's the girl's father. In these movies, dad is portrayed as out of touch, hard-headed, controlling, overstepping his bounds, an intruder and a threat to the relationship. And we have come to falsely understand that it is a young woman who solely decides who she gives her heart to. There's no concept of a father being the protector of her heart and deciding who is worthy to marry her or not. So tonight, we will look at three points to help us gain some understanding to a father's role in the courtship of his daughter, the father's role in the formation of new families. So the first point we're going to look at is a father's right. The second point is a father's responsibility. And the third point, a father's relationship. So if you will, turn with me to Numbers chapter 30. Alright, Numbers 30, which is a chapter about making vows unto the Lord, and we will see a different dynamic between men and women in this chapter. So, Numbers 30, starting in verse 1. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So if a, if a man makes a vow or a pledge, his word shall stand. But with women, we see in verse 3, If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her then all her vow shall stand and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand but if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vows of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. So there was a dynamic between uh, a, fa- um, yeah, a father and his daughter. And here in verse 6, we see between a husband and his wife. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that, she, that he hears, then her vow shall stand and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a, di- of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or, or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vow shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null... 
and void on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. So, if a man makes an oath, he is not allowed to break his oath. But there's a different dynamic for women. If a wife or daughter makes a vow, her male head has a right to cancel the vow as if she has never made it. If he hears of it and does nothing, her vow stands. If he hears of it and opposes it, he has the authority to veto it. Now, wives and daughters, I don't uh, suggest you make vows or promises apart from the counsel and uh, approval of your male head. But fathers and husbands, I do expect you to be such a leader that you will step up and cancel out any vow that your wife makes that you find sinful or detrimental. The male head is always acting even when he fails to act. The refusal to act is... And action. As we see in the text, if the male head does not act against the vow of his wife or daughter, then it will stand. So, men, do not advocate, which means neglect. Do not neglect your duties. You are always leading. Failure to lead is actually leading in failure. Do not assume a passive role as a head of your house. Be active and understand it's not meddling or intruding on your wives and daughters. It's being their God-ordained protective head. And we see in the text that there should be no period where there is a gap of independence where a woman is without a male head. She is to be under the authority of her father, and then the authority is transferred to her husband. And we know we live in a fallen world, and verse 9 addresses this by saying, A vow of a divorced woman or a widow will stand against her. There are fallen, fallen circumstances in a fallen world. And in these cases, a man has divorced his wife or a man has died before his wife. And in both cases, they are results uh, of the fall and should be outlier cases, right? Especially divorce. But we do not make our principles on the exception or on the difficult cases. We base our principles on the rule. And it should be the rule in our church culture that our women are under the protective authority of male headship. So we see that as a creational design by God. So in the context of Numbers 30... The oaths or the vows being made are being made unto the Lord. So some might say, well, this only applies to vows being made to God. But I would argue, if the male head can cancel out a vow made to God, how much more can the male head cancel out his wife's or daughter's vows made to mere people? If your wife makes a commitment to babysit for someone next week, 
you have the right to cancel the commitment she has made. If your daughter makes a commitment to go to a friend's house, you have the right to cancel the commitment she has made. And if you fail to act, their vows shall stand. So the same thing with your daughter's romantic interest in the vows she may make to a young man. A father has a right over his daughter's vows. And we also see he is responsible for her purity. So the first point is a father's right. The second point is a father's responsibility. Turn with me over to the next chapter, Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21. Starting in verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman... And when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city and the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet... This is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give him to the f- and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So here in this passage, we see that if a man takes a wife with the understanding that she is a virgin... And on their wedding night, he accuses her of not being a virgin. Then the father of the young woman, and notice the father's involvement in this passage. So the father of the young woman and the mother shall bring the evidence of their daughter's virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. It's a public uh, act. It's a public display. So if the evidence proves she is a virgin... The husband who made the false accusation is whipped. He must pay a fine of a hundred shekels to the young woman's father. And he is not allowed to divorce her all his days because he has defamed her. God's law is in place to protect the innocent and to punish the guilty. But if the evidence proves she lied about being a virgin... Then they will bring her to the door of her father's house. And the men of the city will publicly stone her to death because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So what's going on here? This is not a case of adultery. This is a case of fornication. But that is not all that is at play here. Adultery is a capital crime in Israel, but fornication, you know, sex before marriage, it's not. 
Fornication is a, a shameful sin that has consequences, but it's not a capital crime. What's going on here is virginity is a priceless thing to bring into a marriage. And the man paid a virgin's bride price expecting a virgin. If a woman were not a virgin and the man understood that going into the marriage, there is no actual cause against the woman. But if he paid the bride price for a virgin, a virgin he should get. What we have here is a case of sexual fraud. Right? The, the father represented his daughter as a virgin. And the suitor paid a virgin's price for her, and she was found guilty of playing the whore in her father's house. And notice, where was she executed? At the door of her father's house. Why in front of her father's house? Because fathers are responsible for the sexual purity of their daughters. Fathers are not guilty for the sins of their children, but they are responsible. The father wasn't executed. The daughter was, but she was executed at the door of her father's house, signifying his responsibility over her vows and over her purity. He gave her in marriage as a virgin, and he failed his job because she wasn't one. Does this mean he was aware she wasn't a virgin? Not necessarily, but it is his responsibility that she is one. He had not done his job as a father protecting the innocence of his daughter. Man, it is your job, it is your duty, it is your responsibility to protect the innocence and the purity of your daughters. Her virginity is a priceless thing and you are to guard it as such. What is wrong with fathers today? Letting their daughters run around with whoever, whenever, dressed however. Letting their daughters run around as loose as they want. No concern of what they consume, what they do, who they are with. Most men think it's you know, their responsibility to make sure their daughters are fed, clothed, no matter how little the clothing, and to make sure their daughters you know, graduate school, at least you know, through the 12th grade. They see that as the sum of their duties until the young girl is 18 and then she is turned loose into the world as if she was one of the boys. Why do you think there's so much sex outside of marriage, teenage pregnancies, abortions, so many divorces in single mother households? What is wrong with fathers who have allowed their daughters to become entangled in these situations? In large part, fathers have abdicated their responsibilities in the purity and protection of their daughters. Oh, she's of age and could possibly get pregnant? Let's just throw her on birth control. That's how many men have relegated their responsibilities in protecting their daughters. All of this is by no means downplaying the young men's role in any of these things. We are to teach our sons that, that sex is tied to the marriage covenant. To be, um, it's tied to responsibility. It's tied to fatherhood. You should train your sons to be self-disciplined, self-controlled, to not desire loose women and, and women whose fathers are not involved. But I'm looking at, at the fathers of the daughters and telling you not to even give these young men a chance. Don't even give them the opportunity. The young man is not the protector of your daughter's purity. You are. Do not be naive or apathetic in that pursuit. The cultural downgrade that we see today would not be possible if fathers were standing in their God-given duties and responsibilities. And if we are to regain the culture that we talk about, it will not happen apart from fathers stepping up and standing in their biblical role. One last passage I will have us turn to is 
Exodus 22. Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17. Starting in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So here is a case of fornication between a young man and a young woman. The virgin was seduced. The seducer pays the bride price for a virgin, and the father decides whether or not the seducer can take his daughter as his wife. And notice who still has say over the matter. The father. The father has failed in some capacity in this situation, right? But he still has authority and responsibility here, and he still gets to determine if his deflowered daughter is given in marriage to the one who deflowered her. And, and there's this weird notion with some people that sex automatically makes you married to someone, or that you are required to get married if sex has occurred. Well, sex alone does not make someone married. Right? Marriage is a relationship within the bounds of a, of a covenant commitment that has been ratified. There must be a formal consent from the daughter's father. He must ratify, he must authorize, he must transfer his headship to the, father's, or to the daughter's suitor for there to be a marriage covenant. If the father refuses, there's absolutely no marriage. And we have a tradition in our, in our wedding ceremonies today of the father giving away his daughter to her new husband. But for much of the culture, that's just an empty tradition. But it, it used to be understood as a necessity for marriage. That the daughter is given from her old male head to her new male head. And that the authority is transferred from the father to the husband. And who holds the authority to make that transfer? The father. So he has the authority to refuse to transfer and he has the authority to confirm the transfer. In an obedient culture, the involved authority of the um, the involved authority of the father in courtship is recognized and it's respected. It's welcomed, and the daughter sees the involvement of her trustworthy uh, father in the process of courtship as a blessing. A father has a right over his daughter's vows, right? That's the first point. The second point is he is responsible for his daughter's purity. Alas, we see a father must have a relationship with his daughter. So a man's relationship with those under his authority should image the relationship the man has with God. God is the provider. God is the protector. God is the sustainer. He has all authority. He is kind. He is forgiving. He is slow to anger. He disciplines. He corrects. He seeks our good. He gives good gifts. And He is abounding with covenant love towards us. God has given the male head the delegated authority to image him in the care and protection of those whom God has put under his care. And as we've stated, the culture views male headship as oppressive and abusive and detrimental to women. 
So, but when followed by God's design, it's the exact opposite. A godly man uses his authority to provide for, to protect, to bless those under his headship. In many ways, he's the conduit that God uses to pour out blessings upon the entire family. Right? And, and you see that, right? What are the stats? If, if a woman comes to faith first in her family, how many of the children are saved? Not many, right? If the father is the first saved in his family, 99% of the time, the entire family is converted. So, Fathers are, in many ways, the ordained means uh, to pour out blessings upon the entire family. But a lot of women have the wrong view of male headship because the men in authority in their lives have been abusive, neglectful, or absent altogether. The office of father has been disrespected by the children because the office of father has been disrespected by the father. The father has taught them to disrespect his office. Fathers have abdicated their responsibilities. They've been derelict in their duties. Sons become like their fathers and daughters are naturally drawn to men like their fathers. So many times failures in the home are due to the male head leading in failure. What you do and don't do is always communicating something. A lot of men are, are so checked out, passive, and uh, browbeaten by their wives that they assume a submissive role in the home just to get through the day so mama is happy. If, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. What a pathetic saying. Get your home in order. But why do you think a woman thinks she has to act like that in the first place? Well, in many cases, she's trying to step up and fulfill duties that her husband is neglecting. Women can't be men, and it crushes them when they think they have to step up and act like the man in the home. And what is this teaching your home? What is it teaching your daughters? Well, it's, it's teaching her that she's going to have to be the dominant figure in her marriage in order to get things done. It's teaching your son to be weak, apathetic man babies. Or, on the flip side, the man has become a tyrant that his entire family fears. And he waves his authority around like a schoolyard bully. He yells at everyone, stating how they have to obey his authority and do what he says, all the while he is failing to take responsibility for his own duties. And if you're constantly having to shout at your family about the authority that you hold, you're probably not much... Uh, of a leader and your authority won't be taken seriously or at the very least it won't be submitted to joyfully. A man might say well I always have to yell because they don't listen to me unless I yell. Well if that's the case then you don't have their hearts and you're failing in that responsibility. In this household a son learns he needs to grow up and become a tyrant of his own and a daughter learns that her father is a man she wants to get away from as soon as she can. It's hard for women to submit to passive men and it's hard for them to submit to tyrants. Because in both cases, uh, she doesn't feel protected, right? She is, is, feels threatened and not protected by her male head, so she usurps his authority. Now, women, that is not an excuse to undermine your husband. You should follow your husband and... As far as he's not leading you into sin, you should respect his authority and submit to him. Um, so this is not an excuse to uh, wag your finger at your husband saying, Hey, uh, you know, you yell sometimes or sometimes I think you're passive and doesn't know. 
But this is a sermon challenging the men to step up and walk in their God-given roles. Men must protect their families, and one of the greatest threats to a man's family is the man's own sin. Women shouldn't have to be protected from the one who is supposed to be her protector. Authority naturally flows to those who take responsibility. And our culture disrespects the office of father because fathers have neglected their duties and responsibilities, which is why biblical courtship is such a foreign idea to our culture. Fathers disrespect the office and everyone in the household disrespects the office. Fathers, we must Teach and model biblical leadership in our homes. We must model covenant love in our marriages, with our children, and with our church. If you aren't modeling covenant love in your marriage with your children or with your church attendance and participation, don't expect covenantally faithful children. There is no one person who has an impact on a child's life like a father. You have been delegated this authority so steward it wisely. Your authority should, not, should be a blessing to those under your charge. It should not become an instrument that crushes them. Deuteronomy 14.21 has an odd verse that says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the principle from this verse is this. That which should be a means of nourishment should not become an instrument of death. A mother's milk is nourishment to a young goat, and it should not become the method that kills the young goat. In like manner, a father's authority should be used for nourishment. It should not uh, become an instrument that crushes your children. Paul says in Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers are to use their authority to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And when you are provoking your children to anger, when you exasperate them, you are not bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Paul says something similar in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We must not misuse our authority to crush our children, to beat them down in discouragement. Our authority is to be used for their nourishment, not for their destruction. You must have the hearts of your children, and they must know that you seek their good, that you are on their team, and that they can trust you with their hearts. Douglas Wilson in Father Hunger, as many of the guys have read, uses a checkbook analogy to describe the the nature of a father's authority. A man's checkbook is like a father's authority. On paper, there's your name, account number, a dollar amount on the check. On paper, there's the the necessary information. But on paper, that's the father's authority, essentially. But having your children's heart is like actually having money in the bank that makes the check good. The check isn't much good without money in the bank. And likewise, a father's authority is severely weakened when he doesn't have the hearts of his children. So when it comes to the courtship of your daughter, your daughter should feel safe with you, secure with you. She should trust you with her life. She knows you have the best for her in mind. Like you have her entire life, right? When she, when she woke up in the middle of the night after a nightmare and you got up to comfort her. When you took the time to read books to her when she asked. When you um, took to her interests and, and were in her life. Um, doing what she liked to do. You put the effort in. 
when you consistently disciplined her for her good, when she disobeyed, when you faithfully loved her mother, when you led family worship most nights of her life, when you were present and engaged in the small, common, mundane things, day in and day out, faithfully being her protector. You were there for her, active in her life, all those years, being a good father, reflecting your heavenly father, providing for her, protecting her, giving her good gifts, and banking her trust throughout her life. You should have such a relationship with your daughter that she wouldn't even imagine, she wouldn't even imagine wanting a suitor that her father doesn't want for her. She should trust you much like we trust God. We know God has our best interests at heart, even when He says no, even when things are difficult, even when it doesn't all make sense. We trust, Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good. A daughter should have that similar trust in her father, that he is there on her behalf for her good, and she welcomes anything her father has for her, and she shuns anything he determines is not good for her. She knows her father gives good gifts, and even when her father withholds, it's to protect her and to give her something better in the future. God is trustworthy, and fathers should be trustworthy. Your relationship with your daughter should image your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Love your daughters from start to finish, right? Don't just wake up one day when she's 16 and realize she exists. And then heap up a bunch of rules on her that she's all of a sudden supposed to obey, right? That is a recipe for rebellion. Having her heart is one of the greatest protections of her purity. Her desire to stay in right relationship with her good father does far more than giving her a new list of rules in her teenage years from a father who was checked out for most of her life. And if you're a tyrant and she's scared of you, it might keep her externally from sin in the short term, but you don't have her heart and she's looking for an escape from you and will take it at the first opportunity she gets. If you have her heart, she will joyfully live by the law of her father and is content to be where her father has her. So fathers, you might be thinking, you know, I believe I have a good relationship with my with my daughter, but I'm not sure, you know, this courtship process that you're talking about. I don't, I don't know about that. Well, don't overcomplicate it. The most necessary aspect is your involvement. Remember, the suitor is not the protector of your daughter's sexual purity. He is a threat to it. Before there is a marriage covenant, there is no protection. So before a marriage covenant, there should be nothing risked. You should not allow your daughter to become, to become entangled in such a way that the, if the relationship doesn't come to fruition in marriage, that your daughter is left absolutely devastated and in shambles. You set the parameters of the relationship. Courting is not a private activity between the guy and the girl. You are involved. And that's not an intrusion. It's your right and responsibility. Protect them from temptation. The, The guy and the girl aren't the only ones who need to get to know each other. The father needs to get to know his daughter's suitor, and the father should not transfer his headship to the suitor until he is confident that the suitor will be a biblical covenant head for his daughter. Like Matt says to his daughters, that that they are his until he finds someone who will take care of them as good or better than he does. So, you should get to know the suitor. Ask the questions. How would you take care of my daughter? How much money do you make? What are your plans? What are your aspirations in life? 
How will you provide for and protect my daughter? How will you lead her spiritually? Be thorough with all of your concerns. Do your job. And young men might be thinking, you mean, you know, I don't get any privacy with your daughter? How am I supposed to get to know her? Well, for one, you will get to know her much better in the context of her family. How she treats her father, how she treats her mother, how she treats her siblings. That will tell you much more about her than who she might portray herself to be with you one-on-one. And for two, dang right, you don't get any privacy with my daughter. She is mine. It is my job to protect her. And you are a threat to her until there is a marriage covenant. And some might be thinking, well, this seems outdated. What, what if fathers get it wrong? What about romance? What if, what if he turns down a great young man that would have made a great husband? Well, sure, the father might make the wrong decision, but it's his decision to get wrong. You trust a young, easily influenced, infatuated young woman to make a better decision? No? Well, God doesn't either. When a father steps up and fulfills his role in the courtship of his daughter, daughters will have a sense of relief that the decision is not ultimately hers. It takes the pressure off of her, and it honors her as a weaker vessel. So, are we talking about arranged marriages? Well, not necessarily. I'm not necessarily against that, but a good father will consider his daughter's interests. He will know her, what she needs, what she enjoys, and he will hear her input. Right? If a young man approaches Matt to pursue Audrey, and Audrey tells Matt, you know, I, I'm not interested in this, in this young boy. Uh, he's, I don't really find him attractive. His breath kind of stinks. You know, I'm not into it. Uh, do you think Matt's going to make her marry him? Of course not. He's a good father who wants to give good gifts to his daughter. And as our Heavenly Father knows us and has our best interests at heart, likewise, good fathers try to do the same for their daughters. So there could be much more said about the methods of courtship, but fathers must have an understanding of covenant headship and understand their authority and their responsibility in the process. I hope we have moved some in that direction tonight, and it won't be long until the rubber meets the road within our church concerning this concept, as we have many children in the church coming into this age. So I trust a father who grasps the principles of his headship, Authority and responsibility to set wise parameters and methods in the courtship of his daughter who he loves. So, as we close, men, repent where you have failed. Step up and lead where you have failed to lead. Be active and involved in your homes now. The process of raising godly homes, the process of raising your daughters, doesn't start... uh, When they are grown, right, it starts in the beginning, when they are babies. And if you have failed to this point, it starts where you find yourself now. Have any of us perfectly imaged God in our relationships? Have any of us been perfect fathers, husbands, sons, wives, mothers or daughters? Of course not. Have we been perfectly faithful in all the duties and responsibilities God has given us? Not even close. So we repent where we know there is sin, and we trust that Christ has fulfilled all obedience on our behalf. He has died for our sins, and He has raised from the dead, and we are forgiven and empowered by His Spirit to image Him well in our relationships and in all areas of our lives. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and has all authority in heaven and on earth, and He has delegated authority to men 
to be covenant heads over their families. God has given us the ability to image Him, and men, He has called you to image Him in covenantal headship, providing for and protecting those whom He has placed under your charge. Be culture builders. Lead your families. And as the Apostle Paul says, act like men. Be strong. Let's pray. God, we come before you as our good, perfect Father. And we thank you so much that you have saved us in Christ and that you have given us the ability to image you. God, we pray that we image you in our relationships, in the roles that you have given us. We pray that we are walking in the biblical um, gender roles that you have created for us. God, we pray that we understand the principles of your scripture, God, that we... That you purge um, the postmodern views that we have been indoctrinated into. Purge those out of us, God. Return us to your word, God. And pray that we, through your spirit, have a biblical church culture that spreads to our community. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God.